You are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Lots of developments on the Red Hill front today on the floor of the Senate near our nation's capital. Hawaii U.S. Senator Brian Schatz questioned Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro about the timeline for defueling the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility. He sought assurance that the military is not wavering on the closure. Here's Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for being here, uh, Secretary uh, del Toro. Uh, just very quickly, are we on track for defueling Red Hill? Senator, we are very much on track for defueling Red Hill. Uh, as you know, we have also submitted uh, our closure plan for Red Hill. Uh, we've uh, submitted addendum number one, and we're working on addendum number two as well, too, that will be submitted later this year. Do you have any reason to believe that defueling will adversely impact the DOD's ability to support military operations in the AOR? Uh, I do not, Senator. In all my conversations with senior leadership at the Pentagon and looking at the strategic laydown plan for the fuel afterwards, I don't see any uh, challenges whatsoever to executing that plan um, over the course of time. Absolutely not. Thank you. And do I have your commitment to make sure that the Navy works with state and local partners on the health care aspect of this as well as environmental remediation? Senator, you've always had my commitment on that subject, and you will continue to have my commitment on that subject, working with uh, the Office of Secretary of Defense and DHA in particular to ensure that uh, the service members and also the people of Hawaii have the services they need from a health care perspective moving forward. That was Senator Brian Schatz pressing uh, Navy Secretary Carlos de Toro on the status of defueling at Red Hill at a Senate hearing in Congress today. In another development, the first active duty personnel are taking steps to join a lawsuit against the Navy for the fuel contamination of the military's drinking water. The Hosada Group uh, Law Group, along with Just Well Law and PLLC yesterday, filed new legal claims on behalf of Navy Ensign, Coda Freeman, uh, Ad, uh, Army Colonel Jessica Whaley, and Army Major Amanda Find. Uh, attorneys are planning two community meetings to discuss the legal action. The first is 6 p.m. tonight at the Kei Lagoon Memorial uh, Center, and the second is Thursday, March uh, 30th uh, at 6 p.m. at the AMVETS West Oahu Veterans Center. We should also note that it was a year ago this week that the Environmental uh, Protection Agency asked labor inspectors to step in and take a look at a fire suppression system at the Red Hill Underground Fuel Storage Facility. They found the system in the lower access tunnel had been disabled and locked down, meaning firefighting foam wouldn't be automatically triggered in the event of a fire. The officer who took the inspectors around wasn't aware of that fact, according to OSHA documents. Roger uh, Forstner is the uh, OSHA area director based in Honolulu. He signed off uh, on the violation notice and talked to us about what they found inspecting the AFFF system, which is short for Accutaneous Film Forming Foam. As we're going through it, you know, we found that there was the AFFF system was disabled. Um, and we also found that the people in there doing the work didn't realize it was disabled. Um, they thought it was automatically the AFFF would come on um, if there was, was a fire. And what is the risk associated with having a system like this locked down? Well, when you have, you know, that much fuel in an area, you know, once it, you know, catches fire, you want to be able to, you know, get that suppressed as quickly as possible, you know, and it was just with regular water, just won't do it. It basically, with fuels like that, it almost just pushes the fire around. Well, I mean, looking at the notice of violation and in there, you noted that this system was taken out of operation for at least a year and they didn't really have a adequate backup. Yeah, it's correct. There were, like I said, there was just water. So there was no way that, you know, immediately they could get that AFFF to blanket, you know, if there was a fire. Employees working in that area, you know, definitely, you know, with that much fuel could, be, could become trapped. I would think it would probably be, um, you know, contained inside of there. Um, so for the public, it probably wouldn't have been, a, you know, a risk, but um, you never know, uh, you know, it's a lot of fuel. Whenever, you know, citations are issued or notices to um, the federal agencies, we give, you know, a time where they need to make corrective actions. Um, so, you know, each one, we look at what it is, and then when the citations go out, it gives a date 
that's a sign to when they have to commit corrections. Which they did. Yes. I'm looking at one of the reports, and it said that, you know, this suppression system wasn't operational beginning in September of 2020, and that it the pump was turned off because there was a leak in the underground piping. Do we know if that had been fixed? So um, by the April the 26th is when they had um, made all those fixes and had it operational again. And then clarify for us, because it seemed like there was lack of knowledge about that system and whether it could be operated manually or not. We looked at a lot of the people that worked there. They really didn't understand that it, um, that the system was locked out. You know, they thought it was in in an, in an automatic mode where just just like the um, you know sprinkler system in a building where heat or smoke would set it off and it would start automatically. So. You know, a lot of the workers there were under the understanding that if fire or something occurred, you know, the AFFF would automatically start working to put out the fire. Okay, but that wasn't the case. No. So thank goodness we didn't have a fire. Yeah. And so what was the remedy for that? You know, because there was some back and forth, I think, about whether the system could be manually turned on. It was like a few weeks. They Well, they notified everybody first of that condition, and then they actually kept somebody in the place so where they could manually turn it on, like, immediately um, until they got the, the permanent fix in place. Just, I don't know, there's definitely, a, you know, a breakdown of communication with who knew, you know, kind of the status of everything. You know, can't really say who or, or when, but, you know, it's just, the, you know, the definitely the, the workers that were there really weren't aware of it. And the U.S. Labor Department says its violation initially included a concern that hot work or welding was allowed in the area. That part of the complaint was dropped when it was determined that proper protocols were followed, which included checking with the Marine chemists and federal firefighters prior to the work. Uh, and we mentioned that the Navy maintained that the AFFF system could still be operated manually and that it's also switched to using fuels that had a higher flash point, so we're not as volatile. And so technically, uh, the military was not in violation of OSHA standards. It still, however, raises questions about what could happen in a catastrophic event. So basically, some of the fuel that's there at Red Hill is less flammable than what used to be stored there. Correct. But is there still a need for a fire suppression system? By your standard, no. Would I want it? Yes. You know, our standards are written for kind of a, most of our stuff, when you have that large of fuel tanks, they're outdoors. You know, Red Hill is one of those unique places where it's, you got a lot of different things that the unique, that one location, mm-hmm. whereas typically, you know, you got the fuel tanks out, you know, in different places, they're outside and, you know, it, you have a lot less risk for vapors concentrating because it's an open air. That was Roger Forstner with the Department of Labor. The Navy says prior to the use of the firefighting foam system, it had a sprinkler, sprinkler system that could use water, even though OSHA says by itself water would not be very effective. The Navy says uh, it now has a dedicated person on duty to manually activate the firefighting foam. And we should note that tomorrow marks four months to the day that 1,300 gallons of AFFF spilled from a pump station in an area called Attic 6. The Navy won't say why it's taking so long to release the findings of the investigative report. And while it has pledged better transparency, it won't say what exactly is hanging up the release of the documents and the video of the area. Hawaii's housing crisis is no secret, and while each county has made it a priority, each is approaching the problem a little differently. HBR reporter Sabrina Bowden is here to talk about this. So you looked at the mayor's State of the Counties address, huh? Yes, I did, <laughs> Catherine. So earlier the month, earlier this month, each uh, mayor had their State of the County address, and during their addresses, each one outlined some of their plans to build more housing and upcoming projects in each of their counties. And a few common themes are investments, redirecting taxes away from residents and to tourists or investment properties, and building housing for groups of people. So on Maui, Mayor Richard Bisson has proposed increasing the county's housing fund by 5%. 
And the county typically puts about 3% of property tax revenues into the fund. So he's proposing 8% in this upcoming fiscal year budget, which will take the fund from $3 million to $43 million. So that's a huge boost. And additionally, Mayor Bisson has also proposed decreasing residential property taxes, which will have a direct impact on residents. When we leverage the county's financial strength and use our operating budget as a tool, we build a stronger fiscal foundation. To help our island families, my proposed budget calls for a reduction in property taxes paid for all owner-occupied homes that are valued at $3 million and below and to lower the mandatory minimum property tax to $300. This is intended to support residents who make the islands their home and not a housing investment. And that's similar to what uh, Mayor Derek Kawakami on Kauai is doing. And he's proposing a 10% decrease in residential and homestead property tax rates. So there, the county is also working to increase transitional housing initiatives. So those are different buildings for specific groups of people. And that's also similar to what Mayor Mitch Roth is doing. And during his speech, he talked about a couple projects specific to certain groups like veterans. So he acknowledged that the fact that housing takes a long time. Earlier this year, we broke ground on the Hale uh, Nakoa Ohanakahi project in uh, Kavili Street in Hilo with a preference for veterans and surviving spouses. This project is a 92-unit senior affordable housing project developed by EAH Housing in partnership with the Hawaii Island Veterans Memorial Group. We provided financial assistance through its home and house trust funds totaling 5.5 more, 5.5 million dollars and 50 project-based vouchers to add uh, to the project's viability. This project was 16 years in the making and we're proud to have contributed to getting it over the finish line. By the end of 2023, we plan to break ground on an additional eight projects that will add an additional 778 affordable housing units to the market soon after. And here on Oahu, Mayor Rick Blanchardi boldly called housing one of the city's most wicked problems. That was kind of the basis of his speech. And over the years, he's led an affordable housing working group that has identified state funding and created new programs like incentives and bond programs to fund rehabilitation and development of housing. During his speech, he outlined some of the projects the city is developing. Last year, we acquired the Waikiki Vista a former university dormitory for $37.75 million. It's the city's largest affordable housing acquisition ever. It will bring one, over 100 affordable rental units to the market within walking distance of Waikiki. 1615 Alawai, the city initiated condemnation against this long-neglected building in Waikiki, and we are currently planning a senior affordable housing project there with 40 to 60 units. The Cunea Boxcar Lot, located on a prime five-acre city parcel in rural Kinea. We're now ready to engage the community with early concept plans for a proposed 200-plus unit affordable rental complex. Our vision includes a much-needed community child care center, along with a park and ride for easy connections to bus and rail. It all sounds very good. But, you know, we'll see Mm -hmm. how fast they can actually produce these units. That's one of the things that was also mentioned during these speeches is that all of a lot of these projects that we're, you know, clapping our hands about now are usually initiatives that have come five, six years down the line. You know, we're waiting for permitting. We're waiting for supply chain. And right now it's it's really hard to get housing off the ground. So when Mayor Mitch Roth is talking about this veterans project, 92 units for senior housing, that's 16 years down the line to make that happen. So all of the projects that we're talking about now with these four mayors, maybe we'll see them in the next five years. Hopefully they can kind of do this during their terms. Yeah, we should declare a race (laughs) get it done faster and 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 put you know more units up Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what uh governor josh green wanted to try to do with that emergency proclamation during his state of the state address if you remember he signed a proclamation to try to increase or make faster the permitting process right and unfortunately you know you've got uh uh, folks in some communities the nimby aspect Mm -hmm. yes we want housing but not in our backyard 
And that's unfortunate, you know. So hopefully the mayors can kind of get the ball rolling with their different housing departments and get housing for the people. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see. I still like my idea about the contest. (laughs) But thanks so much. That was HPR Sabrina Bowden. You can read more on this issue at hawaiipublicradio.org. And for our reality check today, we have a story about blood alcohol levels and the push to lower the legal limits. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Jack Truesdale join us, joins us. Jack, welcome aboard. Hi, Catherine. <laughs> yeah, so this is something that groups have tried to get past before. Yeah, at least going back to 2017. But they haven't had very much luck, but I understand that this is, what, the farthest that uh, the bills have gotten? Um, yeah, back in 2021, the bill reached a similar point in the legislative process, and then it was killed again. Um, but yeah, that's the farthest this has come since then. So where are we at right now? Uh, basically, uh, Representative David Tarnas um, told the advocates to basically come back again next year. Tarnas would you know, do some data analysis over the next uh period before the legislative session of next year and uh, try to find out what will actually be the most effective in reducing traffic fatalities. And so he's the uh, House Judiciary Chair, um, and he just, what, just isn't going to hear this bill? Yeah, he basically, well, what he told me was, I'm not convinced that it actually is going to have a statistically significant impact. Um, And that's mostly because the number of uh, drunk driving incidents that happen when the blood alcohol level would uh, cut, would drop in this range from 0.08 to 0.05. It's not actually the the majority of incidents. And so, uh, you know, the the now current governor. I mean, he's a supporter uh, of this idea of uh, of you know dropping the levels. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's got to get to his desk first, right? <laughs> right. He actually introduced uh, this bill in 2017 when he was a senator, and again in 2018. Um, in both cases, the bill didn't make it very far. So talk about where, uh, what places, you know, what other cities uh, have a, a lower limit? Sure. So uh, Utah was the first U.S. state to reduce its limit to 0.05, which is the proposal here. Um, but other countries that have that are, you know, Australia, Belgium, Germany, um, and then other countries have even lower. So, like, Japan has a 0.03, China has a 0.02. Um, and generally other countries have kind of harsher penalties that come with drunk driving as well. So what's the snapshot in Utah? Um, yeah, the Utah case is actually pretty interesting because in the first year that it took effect, it was 2019, so right before the pandemic. And uh, fatal crashes, usually related to alcohol, they dropped. But then... In the next year and the year after, when, to be fair, it was the pandemic, people were maybe drinking more, people were also maybe driving less. So the the variables get really skewed here, but the number of fatal crashes related to alcohol actually went up higher hmm. to higher than what it was before this law passed. Yeah, the, the, the pandemic certainly does skew things. Um, mm-hmm. So, gosh, so, so the current... Uh, level right now is 0.08? That's right. And and so, uh, you know, Utah's the only state, and you know, I guess we'll just have to see. I guess Tarnas wants, what, better numbers then, huh? Yeah, he, he talked about working with some people who are kind of statistical analysts who could really get into what the most um, important variables here to, to work with would be. Um, so, you know, that might actually be looking at laws that can... Uh, you know, better crack down on people with BACs over 0.08 uh, or people who are speeding because those tend to be the more deadly um, factors. And so what was the reaction from the advocates of this bill, you know, when they heard the news that this thing wasn't going to be heard? 
Um, I, I I think they were probably pretty disappointed, but I also think they kind of understand that the the data isn't the the most solid at this point, um, especially in the Utah case. But I think they are looking, they are hoping that it would create some sort of a, a broader cultural shift in the community that just maybe overall having this law in place would make people just generally drink less um, and be a little bit more careful before they decide to drink and drive. Well, you had some interesting um, facts in your story, you know, just about the, the people who, who died uh, and tested positive for mm-hmm. alcohol. Yeah, um, it was. there was one case, I got some data from the medical examiner's office here in Honolulu um, showing that, you know, five of 18 drivers killed in, in uh, crashes, uh, they were, they had very high blood alcohol levels. One whose BAC was a .286, which would have been about a dozen drinks for an eight, oh, 180 pound man. Um, so definitely a lot of alcohol there. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. Just just a, a, a word of warning, though, right? It's just like a, that's not a good thing. Could die of alcohol poisoning. Right. <laughs> you never know. But um, all right. Well, thanks so much, Jack. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. That was reporter Jack Truesdale with today's reality check. You can read the story online at civilbeat.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Carol S. Pearson, author of Persephone Rising, Awakening the Heroine Within. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about transforming our lives through transforming our stories. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next in-person info session for the 2023 Executive MBA is April 11th, scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. Today on The Daily. A massive police training facility southwest of Atlanta and the woods surrounding it have become an unlikely battleground in the nation's debate over policing. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at an article recently about mainland theater chains starting to experiment with tiered pricing. That's what you see at concerts and sporting events where consumers are charged higher prices for the best seats. The conversation with Russell Subiono was curious about whether local movie theater operator Consolidated Theaters was planning to implement a similar plan here. He connected with marketing manager uh, Kyler Kokobun to talk about how moviegoers have evolved in the future of movie going in Hawaii. What does Consolidated Theaters think about how audience interests are evolving when you look at the types of industry professionals that won Oscars this year? You know, I think there has definitely been an evolution within the industry and the recognition that is made for those types of movies within the last, you know, I would say half decade, five or six years. Mm-hmm. I mean, five years ago, there was, a, there was a lot of protests in terms of there being a lot more male or as well white centric nominees and you know that's evolution and I think we see that more and more that there's definitely been more recognition for a much more diverse slate of nominees and I think we see that more and you know in Hawaii being how you know our makeup and our demographic is we've always been much I think I don't want to say ahead of the curve in that way but with Parasite that won a few years ago and now with everywhere everywhere every <laughs> yeah, everything, everywhere, everywhere all, all at once, once. <laughs> every time. I always yeah. give us on that one. But it's just that, you know, we did see interest locally for that movie. And we did see a good amount of people come out to watch that movie. And I think, yeah, for sure that 
overall the academy and nominees in that way have really are in a good way recognizing that diversity for sure and it seems like it's a priority for you guys to bring a diverse spectrum of movies to the islands as well i know the Kahala Theater is pretty well known for bringing in independent films, art house movies, even the Pearl Ridge Theater. I see a lot of Korean films, a lot of Asian films go through there. Right. I mean, and I think that's part of our goal for sure is to cater to what people want to watch. And especially now, I think it's age of streaming where you can kind of get any content you want at home. It's very important for us to be able to kind of really zoom in on that sort of detailed demographic really and we've seen really over you know coming out of the pandemic a lot more people i think they've been exposed to more of this independent or what we would be called independent films before but now are really more mainstream that really are much being accepted much more by everyone and offering that kind of content for people to enjoy i think is really important to us and as you mentioned you know we've even from pre-pandemic we've had a program at pro ridge spotlight asia which you know brings in a lot of korean films a lot of filipino films and and catering to that demo as well. So, you know, we really try our best to work with distributors outside of, you know, the main studios and bringing in that sort of content that, you know, I think people hear about because of their friends that or their family that live in Asia or live in the Philippines and they want to bring they want to see that content and we we were able to cater to that and bring that here as well. And speaking of of the pandemic, I feel like the film industry and the theater industry is still kind of recovering. I know last year, global cinema box office revenues weighed in at about $26 billion, which is a 27% improvement over 2021, but still 35% below the three-year average right before the pandemic. How deep was the impact of the pandemic, and what lessons did Consolidated Theaters learn about its staff and consumers? Definitely, there were huge challenges that we, you know, immediate challenges that came out of the pandemic in terms of us having to shut down along with, you know, everyone else in the state and, you know, in the broader, you know, industry that we were one of the first real yeah, industries, I guess, as total that really we just shut our doors and we said, you know, we need to do our part. We need to help curb crowds and gatherings. But coming out of that, unfortunately, people had become more accustomed to streaming, had become more accustomed to consuming that media at home. And what we really had been trying to do, and the most important thing is really provide more experiences for people and sort of emphasizing that gathering in terms of experiential experiences rather than just, you know, sitting by yourself and watching a movie, that there's more to it than that, that, you know, laughing with other people, crying with other people is, you know, is really important in terms of just a social engagement with other people, even though not necessarily people that you went to the movies with, but just other people in general, just enjoying something that you're enjoying or experiencing something that you're experiencing, for sure. Earlier this month, the New York Times published an article warning consumers that multiplex operators on the continent have started to experiment with tiered prices for movies. It's kind of like what you would see at a sporting event or a concert where the better seats are are higher priced. Does Consolidated have any plans to implement that kind of tiered pricing in the future? You know, we obviously are constantly, uh, you know, looking at our competitors and seeing what they're doing and, you know, based on, you know, our model. But currently, we don't have any plans to implement that sort of tiered pricing. What our plan currently is, you know, we have different experiences like a couple for example we have half of the theater which is recliner half of it which is traditional seating and then we have at olino or mililani or ward we have titan lux which is our premium large format sort of setup versus like a regular recliner so we have different tiers in that way where we have different experiences at different price points that you know we just want to offer our guests in terms of what they feel the most comfortable spending and that's kind of where we're at right now where we have different levels in terms of the experience and you know the choice is there for them to make whichever one they would like to sort of partake in, for sure. And then the other thing are these movie subscription passes. I recently read that MoviePass is looking to relaunch its service in the summer, and I know that Regal has its unlimited subscription pass. 
how has that subscription model impacted consolidated theaters and are there any plans to roll out a similar service? You know, we locally haven't seen it dramatically impact our business. We haven't seen a huge move to Rego regarding the subscriptions. But like I said, you know, we're constantly looking at the space and looking at what other, what, you know, our competitors are doing and looking at, you know, what we can do to improve our business model. Our goal, obviously, is always to bring more and more people into our space. So I won't say never say never because, you know, I think it is a discussion we've had in the past. We don't have any imminent plans to implement a subscription right now, currently. But, you know, as we move down, I think, you know, subscriptions in terms of like streaming and everything else, I think it's something that people are more and more used to. And I think it would be, I mean, it's something that we're going to have another hard look at in terms of implementing to, you know, bring people into our space and, and you know, create that sort of loyalty to our brand for sure. Do you think that moviegoers tend to go to theaters that are closest to them or to the theaters that offer the best experience? I mean, that's a really interesting question. I think we definitely see for the trend, I think, has been the experience. People are willing to drive past their neighborhood theater to like the flagship theaters at Ward or at Olino to get that sort of premium experience. So I think that is why, you know, we did make those changes at Kapolei. We made those changes at Kahala. We renovated Mililani as well, installed recliners at Pro Ridge. You know, I think we just need to constantly meet the expectations of our guests and meet the expectations of, of the moviegoer. And I think that's something that we are constantly trying to do and constantly trying to innovate in that space in terms of how we meet those goals. I grew up on the Big Island. I grew up in Waimea, so I had to drive an hour to Kona or Hilo to go to the movies. But now I live in Aiea, and it's just a quick drive down to Pearl Ridge to go to the movies. Well, thanks so much for coming into the station. Really appreciate your time. Awesome. Right. I mean, yeah, like I said, like, you know, we're so happy to see people coming into the doors. I mean, it's been an experience coming out of a pandemic. So seeing people come into the theater, come through those doors, stand in the concession stand, buy their popcorn, and then go into a movie and laugh the night at least for a couple hours. Yeah. That's just nothing makes us happier as a company. And as, as people who have operated in this space for so long, we just want to make sure we can continue doing that for hopefully, you know, another hundred years at least. So. Thanks for your time, man. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. That was Consolidated Theater's uh, Kyler Kokobon talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about the impacts of the pandemic on moviegoers and the future of moviegoing in Hawaii. As Women's History Month draws to a close, we look back into uh, our archives and we're highlighting a woman who made significant contributions to the medical field, obstetrician Dr. Kong Tai Hong. She's credited as the first Chinese woman to practice uh, Western medicine in the islands after sailing from Canton, China to Honolulu with her physician husband in 1896. Kong was also a certified midwife and counsel expectant mothers for over 50 years. In 1946, she was featured in Ripley's uh, Believe It or Not for having delivered more babies than any other private practitioner in the U.S., over 6,000. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with Dr. Kong's great-granddaughter, Louise Ng, to learn more about her lasting legacy. My grandmother on my mother's side, Mary Lee Sia, is one of Dr. Kong's daughters, and I think she's one of the older kids. So she helped take care. And maybe that's how Dr. Kong managed, too. I think her older children helped take care of the younger ones. Okay. She had nine children, but eight living? That's right. There was at least one baby that didn't survive, mm. maybe two. She had a big family herself. It's pretty amazing to think that here she was going to work. And having kids to raise at the same time, and probably being one of the very few women doctors who were delivering babies at the time. Maybe that's why she was in such demand. Is there a story about great-grandmother that you find very riveting? Hmm. Well, you know, I am most intrigued by the way that she and my great-grandfather met. And of course, that's a story handed down. But they were both medical students at Canton Medical School. And the way my great-grandmother got there was she was apparently a basket baby. She was left at the steps of 
the orphanage that was run by Lutheran sisters that I just recently learned were missionaries that came from Berlin, Germany of all places. And so as she grew up and was schooled there, she took the exams and passed the exams at age 13 or 14, was able to qualify to go to Canton Medical School. And then the other neat thing that I learned just recently is that she was assigned a big sister at Canton Medical School. And I can't imagine there were very many big sister medical students there. But it was the big sister's son who ended up being the man that she married. Dr. Lee Kai-Fai, your great-grandfather. My great-grandfather, yes. Wow. And how was it that they'd come to Hawaii? Well, I'm learning this secondhand, and actually one of my source materials is a book that one of my grand-aunts wrote. Her name is Gladys Lee, or Lee Ling Ai, and she wrote a book called Life is for a Long Time. And I remember reading it decades ago, and now I want to reread it again because it, I think I'm going to see it with new eyes and just really interested to learn how the early immigrants lived in Hawaii. But she talks about the fact that my great-grandfather was from a very long line of you know, scholars, and so he was expected to marry and arrange marriage to the proper family. But he had met my great-grandmother and decided that she was the one he wanted to marry. And then he worried about, well, how could we have a life in China when society has so many expectations? And so with the consultation of his mother, he decided that after getting married that the young couple would go almost immediately to Hawaii and work for an uncle of his who already had a business there. So then I learned that they, um, they went over to Hawaii as laborers because that was the only way you could immigrate as a Chinese person, even though they were trained medical doctors. And so it was another story, too, that eventually led them to get their licenses. Hmm. And that, that story is another story that I think our listeners really need to know about. Yeah, I thought that was a wonderful story, too, because it showed that, you know, you can get the help of many people from many walks of life and races and stations to help you along the way. And so I think it was my great-grandmother who screwed up the courage to go visit the missionary family of Frank Damon, who was the ancestor of the late Frank Damon, who was a founding law partner in a law firm here. And she went and asked for help in getting her husband and herself licensed as doctors. And I suspect she probably spoke at that time little or no English, but the Damons had been missionaries in China, so were very sympathetic and knowledgeable about the Chinese people. And so he helped them both get an interview with then-President Sanford Dole. And through his offices, they were able to get a meeting before the board of examiners that handed out medical licenses and were given the choice of either doing a long written exam or doing a rather taxing oral exam being examined by a board, you know, and having three minutes to answer something. With the help of the translator, they opted to do the orals, and they passed. And that really just speaks to her ability. So she had been already trained back in Canton. She had gone through medical school, so she had the knowledge. She wasn't going to let language be a barrier. So even though she came to Hawaii under the status of laborer, she really had a different skill set that she knew she could really bring. Yes, indeed. And so it sounded like initially my great-grandfather did work as a laborer to sort of pay off his debt to his uncle. So it took some time, but ultimately, through persistence, they did get their licenses. Hmm. In some of the readings I did, it would say that she would still go to work with one baby under the arm. (laughs) And she was remembered for personally going door to door to treat patients. And she delivered more than 6,000 babies of all races across Oahu. That's just an amazing thing. It is amazing. And the really neat thing I found out when I met my husband shortly after I met is that one of those babies she delivered was my future mother-in-law. Oh, and wow. my future mother-in-law had many siblings, so it could very well be that all or most of those siblings were delivered by her, too. That's a great family story and totally underscores the reach that your great-grandmother had in the community. You know, and in researching this story, discovering that your family has the tie into the Palolo Chinese home, because back in 1896, 
Your great-grandparents opened Yiyin Hospital in Palama. Had no idea it existed, but the first Chinese hospital in Hawaii. And they also acquired 15 acres in Palolo Valley that we know today as the Palolo Chinese home. That was a new one for me, too. I read it in the Star Advertiser, so that was a wonderful piece to learn about the connection with Palolo Chinese Home. Louise, these are just wonderful layers to delve through. There are plans in the works to build arches in Chinatown, and your grandma's going to be honored in that. So as a descendant, as somebody who, you know, whose legacy really, this groundbreaking trailblazer who crossed oceans and made it to Hawaii, what is it like for you to realize that this is the legacy that you have? Well, it makes me proud and also gives meaning to what I always say, which is that we do stand on the shoulders of the prior generations, even as we might rebel or the younger generations might rebel. We really have to thank those who came before. And of course, those of us who are here in Hawaii have to thank our ancestors who made the big decision to leave their life and come to a new land and make a life here. And, you know, as families, I think we often don't appreciate our family histories And it's a good reminder that we need to talk to our older relatives and get their stories before it's too late. And I'm still wanting to learn and ask questions and also pass on that information. But it makes me feel like, okay, you know, I have roots. Maybe that's where some of our determination came from. It also gives inspiration for just carrying on good family values. And so, Louise, with this being Women's History Month, What would you like to say in closing? Well, I think it's very fitting, and I thank you for featuring my great-grandmother because I think that storytelling and learning our history of our families as well as our communities and country is very important, and highlighting the role of women, which oftentimes gets overlooked. It's just important for just sort of inspiring the rest of us and maybe giving us some perspective on our family history and why it's important to do the things that we're doing. So thank you for all the women in our lives who have really inspired us and helped us to be where we are. That was attorney Louise Ng reflecting on her family's matriarch, Dr. Kong Tai Hong. She was the first Chinese woman to practice Western medicine in the islands. She helped establish the first Chinese Church of Christ and served as president of the Honolulu Chinese Orphanage Society. Uh, Dr. Kong uh, has, has several of her grandchildren and great-grandchildren who are practicing doctors today. Current members of Congress are aiding the insurrectionists who attacked Congress on January 6th. Representatives are visiting defendants in jail and releasing raw capital footage to Fox News. Thanks to the new Republican Speaker's office, we gained access to thousands of hours of surveillance video. Members of Congress supporting January 6th defendants. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, why has it taken so long for electric cars to catch on? In fact, in 1897, the best-selling vehicle is an electric car. What can this false start tell us about the speed of innovation? I think a very common trope in the history of technology is that it takes decades to create an overnight success. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin.
This week, we draw the curtain on Hawaii's benevolent royal societies to better appreciate their place in preserving traditions and honoring the ali'i. Earlier this month, we attended a ceremony honoring Queen Ka'umanu, the first wife of King Kamehameha the Great. It was held at Mauna Ala, the cemetery where many of the Hawaiian monarchs have been laid to rest. The members of Ahahui Ka'umanu, or the Ka'umanu Society, dressed in their traditional black mu'u and hats, gathered at the Queen's Crypt, where they brought offerings of flowers and mele and hula. Her birthday lands on uh, March 17th. Westerners mark the day as St. Patrick's Day, but Hawaiians also remember the day as the birthday of King Kamehameha III. And a separate ceremony was held that day at Thomas Square, where a statue in his honor stands. The members of the Kahomono Society are said to wear black to mark a time of loss of so many Hawaiians. Historically, they have worked to help the elderly and the ill, and they are the only society to care for a cemetery in Kapalama, named for the queen who converted to Christianity. We talked to Pauline Namuo, the society's president, to learn more about their mission. Hui Kahumanu is a Royal Benevolent Society established in 1864 to help the Hawaiian people during that time. And it's been carried on since that time. And we are, our core mission is to help members and to honor our ali'i. And we do, well, Mother Chapter Honolulu does own a cemetery in Kapalama, the Kahumanu Cemetery. We have an Ali'i Sunday, which we did on March 12th at Kauaihau Church because Kahumanu is the one who gave the land for Kauaihau Church, and we try to be active there too. In fact, we are active, and we also support Luna Liloho. And we have a full calendar of events. Every month we have something. We try to support the Ali'i birthdays, not try, but we actually do support the Ali'i birthdays and we try to support civic clubs and all the Hawaiian organizations too, when asked. I was recently at the uh, palace when we had the memorial service for um, uh, Kamano Nakoa, and it was uh, incredible to see all the different societies there, so many from all the different islands. You know, and I don't know when there was a gathering that large or when there'll be the next one. Yes, you're right. And we were so honored to be part of that. All of the society members, I'm sure, are very honored to be part of that, to honor her, because Princess Abigail was very kind to Hawaiians. And so for folks who don't know much about the group, can anyone become a member? Is it by invitation only? I know every uh, group has their own rules. So what's the protocol? Um, you need to be sponsored by a current member, and you do need to be Hawaiian and 18 years old, a woman and 18 years old. So we are able to recruit, and we've been successful in recruiting many um, young Hawaiian women who speak the language, which we want to do, want to help perpetuate the language, and are very aware of the culture. And so how do we get um, more of our young people involved in groups like these? You know, I mean, I don't know if, uh, you know, when you attend Kamehameha schools, if that's all part of the curriculum where they explain how these groups, how they started and the legacy that they try and perpetuate. That's a very good question because as president, we are looking at those aspects, um, partnerships with um, entities like Bishop Museum and Kamehameha Schools to actually have a formal partnership to educate young women about our Ahahui. And we will be pursuing that. And gosh, I don't know, anything else you can share with us just about the significance of being here, you know, at the crypt and, and marking the special day? Mana Ala is also a special place and sacred place for us that we always come to honor our Ali'i. And I believe that the Royal Societies will always work towards maintaining that and working with entities to ensure that it keeps up and is maintained. And, and now, if you look at it, it's beautiful. We need to just ensure that it stays that way because of all the changes in the world. And there are other societies here today uh, just in support of, you know, what you do and, and in honor of the Ali'i. Anything else you want to say just about how you folks work together in the community? Yes, um, we uh, have a group, Aha Hipu'u, 
which all the Royal Societies belong to, um, except Momakakawa, but that's for cultural reasons they've decided to work on their own. But we still communicate with with each other and try to maintain our strength through our grassroots activities. We are very grassroots and we focus on Hawaiians, um, everyday Hawaiians. So I think that's very important because we also try to focus on the importance of education. Education is the key to helping our people. We've been hearing from Pauline Namuo, president of the Ka'omanu Society. And we leave you with a rare visit into the underground chapel at Mauna Ala as society celebrates the birthday of their queen. does it for us today. Tomorrow, we continue our look at Hawaii's benevolent societies. Tomorrow, it's the Hale Ona Ali'i o Hawaii. Share your comments or questions about what you heard today by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.